0: in addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts. Our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Today on the AAMFT podcast, I'm talking to two young but passionate MFTs. Carrie Weta and Ben Feynman. They're on a mission to make therapy better, learning from what they didn't get in graduate school and what we're usually not taught. We usually see examples of when therapy works, master clinicians working their magic on family systems, couples, individuals. However, Ben and Carrie met under a common interest to make therapy better by learning from therapeutic mistakes, including their own. As they say, let's face it, therapy goes wrong sometimes. It's not a secret, but we don't talk about it enough. And research suggests that clinician skills don't just improve over time through some sort of alchemy of attending, continuing education, or going to workshops, or just racking up hours. So they went on a mission to find out what happens when therapy goes wrong and how can we become better therapists and what came out of that is a very informative thought provoking and educational podcast very bad therapy my students told me about it and i have been a fan ever since i look forward to sharing this great duo one former professional poker player one of former professional actress, how they came together, their love of learning from therapeutic fails. We'll be back after the interview. Eli here on the AMFT podcast, and I'm being joined by probably professionally speaking, our youngest guest that we've ever had in the three-year run of the podcast. But two of the people I've been most interested to talk to. So today is all about being professionally young MFT, which is our biggest part of our audience. Preclinical fellows, students, young clinical fellows. So about being a young MFT and the learning curve that goes with that. And we're going to talk about some of our greatest fails today because to do this work, you have to be comfortable with failure. The two people I have with me today, Ben and Carrie, I found out about them because a student recommended their podcast which is all about bad therapy and cast is called very bad therapy so it's a great name you know you guys have listened to the show before when we talk about your work everybody's got a story of how they got into this field and sometimes psychotherapy mft specifically it finds you you don't necessarily find it but how'd you get into mft and the world of psychotherapy we'll start with that
1: we both have very unconventional stories, I think. So, hi everybody, my name's Carrie Vita. Um I actually, for many years, was a working actor in Hollywood. California. And i that had been what I wanted to do my whole life. I'd gotten an undergraduate degree in English literature, but then had a quick stint in for-profit education marketing after college, hated that and said, no, I really want to try acting. That's where my heart is. And so was luckily able to do that for, for about 10 years, uh, make a living as an actor. And it is a rough industry. It is It is rough. And so realized that what it actually is on the inside is is very, really pales in comparison to what I was kind of hoping it would be like. Had some great experiences, but also had some not so great experiences. After my, what ended up being my last pilot season, I had a real crisis of faith and was trying to figure out what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. And I started thinking about the things that I hated about my current career and what did I want the rest of my life to look like. My uh, younger brother had, while I was being an actor, he was becoming a psychiatrist, and he is now a board-certified child and adolescent psychiatrist and forensic psychiatrist. I had been really interested in all of the things that he was doing, and he seemed to actually be directly helping people and had a really cool job. And I realized that that was a big part of what was missing for me was I think a lot of actors kind of go into the industry thinking, you know, I'll be able to use what fame I get or what what money I'm able to collect to do good work. Or, you know, sometimes certainly there are good projects, but at the end of the day, I was left very, feeling really unfulfilled. But uh, the more I looked into therapy, the more I figured here is a job that it has a lot of similarities with the things I really enjoyed about acting, like being with people, being present in the moment with other people, really connecting, uh, hearing incredible stories, being being a part of stories, but for an actual, for a very real purpose. N- not to say that there's not great work done in the, the field of entertainment, but this felt more visceral and real to me. So that's how I ended up deciding to go to grad school and see how I liked it. And it turns out I really did. Here I am.
0: Hey, that's great. I did not know that about you. I actually, over the- 20 years of doing this, both worked with and and trained therapists that have had a theater or an acting background. You're right. There's a lot of similarities. And when I think of like the classic MFT models, the the leaders and they were these charismatic figures and they really did put on a show, uh, whether it be. Uh, a live demonstration or a video. So there, there are a lot of things about making a connection. And also, had one supervisor one time that told me, you know, therapy is kind of like method acting, that if, if you've gone through the experience and you have that, uh, it really informs and helps you build an alliance. But wow, what a great story and, and second career. And just for our listeners, Carrie, tell them where you are in your MFT journey at this point.
1: I am trying desperately to wrap up my last semester of graduate school, COVID is really, I'm in a co-AMFD program, so I am stuck trying to get those relational hours, which COVID has really thrown into a tailspin. So I thought I was going to be able to graduate in December, but I'm actually going to end up having to stay another semester.
2: I would say mine is similar to Carrie's in that I had a similar crisis of faith and a feeling of unfulfillment with a lot of aspects of what my life was about before becoming a therapist. So my background uh, is actually as a uh, professional poker player. I had lived in Las Vegas for 10 years. The day that I graduated from my undergrad program in Boston, I drove a U-Haul to Vegas because I wanted to try being a poker player for a living. And it worked out well. And it was a tremendous opportunity. It was a lot of fun. I was in a, a long-term relationship, uh, a domestic partnership. And after about 10 years of being in Vegas, I had this feeling like there had to be something more than what I had in life. I thought I had what would make me happy, and yet I still felt this kind of lack, this absence of something that at the end of the day I could put my head on the pillow and feel like I really made a difference in the world. And so that led me to my own kind of self-discovery, I think for the first time in my life, in my early to mid-30s, and I started reading about Buddhism, I started reading philosophy, things that really spoke to me, and that actually led me to my graduate program, which was An MFT program that was affiliated with a global Buddhist temple. And it's it's interesting when you ask how did you get into this field specifically around being an MFT because I didn't even know the difference between MFT or MSW or being a professional counselor. I had to learn those things before I went to grad school and I chose my program specifically because of the ideologies that it espoused, the kind of culture that uh, I was under the impression was at the school, and the fact that it was an MFT program was, in some respect, kind of accidental. I was more interested in making sure that I showed up in this field in a way that spoke to me individually, that allowed me to be authentic and continue to learn and grow. So I'm really grateful that I ended up pursuing the MFT track, but it really was kind of a, a, a happy accident that that's where I've ended up. You know,
0: it's interesting when I talk to clinicians from California, it is There's more MFTs, obviously, in California where both of you reside than any other place. But it's also the equivalent of New York. If you can make it there, you can make it anywhere. If you can become an MFT in California because of the rigid qualifications, as you know, California-specific test and the amount of hours you have to have, everything like that, you can do it everywhere. But many people pick MFT in California just because that is the most common master's-level professional affiliation. But they don't necessarily think systemically. Obviously, from what I know about you guys and listening to your show, you do think systemically but has your experience been that what you naturally thought that way or that was a product of starting to do the work and being exposed uh, to different theories and thoughts? Sometimes people have always been a family therapist. They haven't had the language, but they've always thought systemically. Are you guys naturally systemic thinkers?
2: I would say absolutely, and I think that informs so much of what we do on the Very Bad Therapy podcast because we both got into this field, and when I'm talking about thinking systemically, It applies, it's generalizable. You don't just think systemically when you're looking at families or when you're conceptualizing an individual client. I think if you think systemically, you sort of see the world around you not as compartmentalized parts that fit together, but as a whole that can be sort of reorganized and looked at more holistically. And I know when Carrie had a similar experience, but when I started in my graduate program and was introduced to ideas around therapy and how therapy works and how it's conceptualized, it didn't feel systemic enough. It felt like you can learn specific ways of thinking and apply that to specific clients, and that's all you need. And something about that way of thinking felt a little off to me, especially as I got a little further in my program and did some research on my own about what underscores good outcomes in therapy, what actually makes therapy work, and you start to realize that it isn't about this medicalized identify problem and fix it. It's about looking not just systemically within an individual, but in the culture and their whole societal context that they're in and seeing what is relevant to them and how you can change them within a much broader system that goes really beyond their their family. Yeah, yeah.
0: We think of MFTs as micro practitioners, but the macro really impacts the micro so yeah i love how you said that and how you naturally thought that way systemically just even more than just the family what about you carrie
1: Putting language, finding language for something that you felt already. I think that when I was trying to decide, you know, which master's level license did I want to pursue, because I knew I didn't want to pursue the doctorate right away, I read broad descriptions I could find online of three different ways you could go with it. And the thing that spoke to me most was marriage and family therapy. I'm really lucky, I think, because my program is headed up by Diane Gayhart and the postmodern approach is something that just like really fit with I think how I thought about things going into it and I just didn't have a language didn't know what that really meant but it just seemed to make a lot of sense the more I kind of learned and and got through and then meeting up with Ben honestly was was so great and I think that we both think about things in very similar ways and so things will make sense to us that seem like totally obvious why doesn't everybody think this way
0: a poker player and an actress that's what i love about this field it does not discriminate is not something you have to do at 22 years old right after you get out of undergraduate i mean many do and you can grow into your skin but the thing i love about psychotherapy as long as you are self-reflective and you are curious about people and how change happens you can always get better and i think it's a profession much like our origin a ragtag or jay haley had a degree in library science you have people with desperate backgrounds all kind of coming together so i mean i love those stories and since you were leading that way too yeah talk about the, you know before there was a podcast obviously there was a collegial relationship and a friendship how did you guys meet and how did that kind of natural interest that you have emerge
1: yeah, well, we were at different graduate programs, but we were both fans of another podcast called the Modern Therapist Survival Guide podcast. We had individually reached out to the show and, and spoken to one of the co hosts, Kurt Widthau, who had invited, again, each of us individually to coffee one day to have our questions answered in person. And I think my appointment was first. And so I went and had a meeting with Kurt and he said, I'm so sorry, I have to wrap this up. I have another meeting right after you. I said, sure, no problem. And on my way out, his other meeting showed up and it was Ben Feynman. Ben turned to me and said, Kurt introduced us and said, you know, would you want to grab lunch sometime and, and chat? So we did. And we ended up meeting at least once a month, maybe every couple of weeks. Every time we got together, we would have awesome conversations about things that we had read or things we were learning or or not learning in our programs. And they were just really rich, awesome conversations.
2: The kinds of things we would talk about were common factors research, feedback informed treatment, deliberate practice, the kind of emerging ideas in our field that when you look at the research on what drives psychotherapy outcomes, It shines a huge spotlight on things like common factors and yet at least in my grad program i barely heard anything about it and i was so excited by these ideas because as somebody who maybe runs a little anxious and really likes the idea of understanding my environment and having control i wanted to know what will actually make me a better therapist over time and what actually works in therapy and i felt like what i was reading in common factors literature in a lot of ways, contradicted what I was taught in school, this kind of like medicalized do X for Y, and you'll be a good therapist, and you'll get better over time. And so much of this research that I'm talking about undermines these common assumptions. And so I was kind of bursting, just looking for somebody to pick apart these ideas and make sense of the world around me. And when Carrie and I met, we would meet up for lunch and end up talking for three hours. And... (laughs) only about things related to therapy. Even to this day, I feel like I don't know a ton about her personal life or her background because we just get lost in conversations about the philosophy of therapy. And we were wondering why nobody was having similar conversations that we were aware of. And additionally, we were wondering why we were being presented in our education and our training ideas on how to do really good therapy from other therapists, from the masters of therapy, watching videos of them doing therapy perfectly. But In the research, you learned that somewhere between 30 to 50% of clients on average don't actually improve in therapy, and yet all of our training was focused on the other group, the people who do get better, and it seemed like this big blind spot. So we wanted to know what happens when therapy doesn't work, what are the clients' perspectives of therapy, especially when it doesn't work, and how can we fit what we're learning about what actually makes therapy work into this picture? And we could not figure out where to go to have these conversations more broadly. So, we decided to create our own podcast because we felt like it was something that we would really enjoy, but also necessary for the field to sort of broaden the way we look at what happens in therapy.
0: So, you guys just organically being interested in seeing a lack in how we train people, and obviously, you're preaching to the choir, somebody's a devoted. The last 20 years of his career to to studying these common mechanisms of change. So I get it completely. So this was an organic, really almost chance meeting. And then a relationship that started with both of you being curious about this because you weren't getting stimulated that way in your programs. And then out of that came the idea for the show. So if you've never listened to the show, tell us what very bad therapy is about.
2: So on each episode, we speak with a person who's been a client of therapy who has had a very bad experience, and this can range from something that may seem mundane if you're listening, like the therapist might have just used a word or two that really hurt a client, maybe uh, the therapist got a little bit defensive, but something that you could sort of see yourself doing in session and think, oh, I've done that, and I guess I'm glad I know that it can have this kind of impact. The other end of the spectrum is things like we heard a story of a therapist physically tackling a client, a story of an older male therapist grooming a younger female client, and so across like the ethical spectrum, it really ranges. But we don't talk about these stories and interview people and learn about their experiences to shame the therapists or to shame the field. We talk about them because these mistakes are avoidable if you're able to create a culture of feedback with your clients to understand their experience of therapy. And it seemed like that was missing. And so we want, I mean, as our, ourselves, we want to learn what are these experiences like for clients so we can be more aware ourselves. But we also want to match that with research on therapy outcomes. We bring on, on most episodes after we speak with our clients, our guests, our guests who have been clients, not our own clients. That would be an ethical minefield. We bring on experts in the field and ask them about what their perspective is on the story that they heard. And the whole goal, I mean, we have a lot of, I think our mission is broad, but we want to normalize that for therapists, making mistakes, having ruptures is okay It is a normal part of therapy, and you can work to try and prevent those things from happening. But they will happen, because vulnerability between humans, it's ripe for rupture. But what happens after that is so often where the stories we hear lie. It's a therapist will push back, will try to explain themselves, will get defensive, will invalidate or even gaslight clients and say, you didn't hear me right, or are you being too sensitive, or all the little things that can make a client feel unsafe, unheard, threatened, etc. And that's the space that we want to occupy is letting clients know, empowering clients to know what they should and should not accept in therapy and helping therapists to sort of normalize failure, to normalize mistakes because it's unavoidable at times.
1: We should be listening to what is working and what isn't for our clients. Uh, We should be accessing that information and incorporating it back into our treatment going forward. The client should really have control Over their treatment, over the sessions, over the relationship. And this seemed pretty obvious, but other than apart from the scales (laughs) that we were not really taught how to use in graduate school, we had to try to figure that out outside of our programs. We didn't have a way to find out from clients. What wasn't working? We had started seeing our first clients in graduate school, and I did not start using feedback informed treatment. I think Ben did from the beginning. But it wasn't really encouraged uh, for me in my in my site. It was just something that I had to do on my own if I was interested. But we really realized that apart from trying to turn our therapy sessions with our clients into nobody really tell me what this is like for you, we didn't have a way to hear from clients themselves. I remember distinctly getting told a lot throughout my graduate training, this really works. Clients appreciate when you do this. Don't do this because this is how clients will feel. But this was coming from professors who granted like had their own experiences with many, many clients, but we never heard from actual clients. And it left me feeling like there was this massive piece of information that I wasn't getting. And then I was going out into the room of clients without this, what felt to me to be a very critical piece. So Ben is the one who came up with this idea. And when he said it to me, I got chills. I actually got bo- goosebumps because I wanted it so bad. I wanted to be able to hear that. I wanted to hear from people saying, what didn't work in therapy and why?
0: You know, in our field, especially young therapists want to know that they're doing well and they're want they they're afraid to ask what's not going well. And to have that normalized very early on in a training program is so important that this is a, a failure-driven progression. We try things, it works, sometimes it doesn't, but we don't know if it works unless we ask. And sometimes I guess we can see it, but it's just easier to ask rather than guessing. So this idea whether you call it feedback-informed treatment or a common factors approach, the client has enough problems that shifting to your way of working shouldn't be another problem on their list. You should be flexible enough to adapt to them. And if you don't know, unless you don't ask. So this was very important in your formation, even though you weren't necessarily getting it directly in your training program. So when you guys started together and do the show, it was a natural kind of fit. How did you go about finding these clients of failed psychotherapies to be so open talking to you? Well, cause it is a refreshing part of the show and really what makes it stand out from everything else. As you said, instead of talking about what works well, you're talking about what didn't work. So how'd you go about finding all this myriad of clients to talk about their ne- negative experiences in therapy?
1: For our first few episodes, we just asked our friends, people we knew, colleagues, classmates. And honestly, I think we seeded our first few interviews with maybe five people that had been either referred to us or whatever, or Ben had posted in a couple forums, maybe on Facebook or I think also on Reddit. Is that right, Ben? And we got enough responses. And then honestly, since very early on, it has just fed itself. A lot of times people come to us, there've only been a couple times where we've had, Ben has said, you know, we're getting kind of low on guests. Maybe we should put the word out. But I think what we've found is that especially the people who, who want to share their story on the show. Often a lot have uh, gone on to become therapists, and that's why they're listening to the show in the first place. They are often have had bad experiences and are now in a graduate program or on, working on licensure. But I think we've found that it's not, again, to go back to this idea of normalizing, I think for clients having bad therapy experiences isn't normalized. And so I think a lot of clients feel like if they've had a bad therapy experience, it's somehow their fault. And so many ways this shows up. All of our guests have a different kind of version of the story. But I think the common denominator is they really want the opportunity to share this and have somebody say like, this this wasn't all on me, right? I didn't mess this up. And often Ben and I are on that side and agreeing, like, absolutely not. You did not ruin this. This is this is not on you.
0: Yeah. And sometimes if you don't clear up that stigma, somebody that really needs help, that has a bad experience, may not go back or get the help they need, or like, as you said, even worse, think it's their fault. So it's interesting as well, even though co-empty programs can't require it. I think there is something about getting your own therapy either before or during your own training is so influential to get that perspective from the other side of the couch, so to speak, of of what's that that is like. It really brings it home in a different way. So Ben had already started talking about some of this, but what would you say the biggest lessons that you have learned so far after interviewing all of these guests about the most common mistakes or ruptures or tears uh, that are made in the alliance uh, or by therapists not checking in like this in a routine way with their clients.
2: The biggest lesson for me as a therapist myself, what I take away is how important it is to be humble because you will make mistakes, you will fail, there will be moments where you say or do the wrong thing, and a significant percentage of your clients will not improve in therapy. I mean, it's unavoidable. Those are the base rates of our field. And if you have defense mechanisms in place so that it's not okay for that to be the outcome. It doesn't mean that you aren't invested and doing as much as possible to help your client. It means that pairing that reality with a genuine effort to wanna help everybody you possibly can, it allows space to go and talk with clients about their experiences when it's not going well. If that defensiveness comes up, if that shame response comes up where you feel like I did something wrong, I must be a bad therapist, I must be a bad person, And so I need to make sure that this feeling is eradicated so I can stay present for my client. You're not allowing space for what's happening with your client or between you in the room. And I think that's part of the culture of therapy, right, is we're taught as we go through school and as we're trained that we're going to learn how to help people, that that's an aspect of our professional and personal identity, and uh, we are the experts. Even if we work from a a non-expert stance, we are still the experts because of our formal training and our experience. And... Incidentally, plenty of research has confirmed that uh, your skill as a therapist is not correlated to your experience. So people, I mean, it's a strange thing to say, but people in the stage that Carrie and I are in on average, are just as effective as somebody with 10, 20, 30 years of experience. You're
0: right. And when I tell young therapists that I train, it's like these things you mentioned. First of all, there is a sense of, with many young therapists, you're getting into this profession, Most people They're not getting into it to make money. They're not getting into it to change everybody. They're getting into it, the people that do the best in mental health professions is because it's a good fit for them. They're naturally curious, many times empathic people. So that authenticity, clients, I don't care what your developmental level, your education level, your socioeconomic status, they can smell authenticity. And sometimes when you are really trying to help someone and you are being there for them, that is the most important thing. And young therapists have that and clients respect that. And you're right. Sometimes the more age and experience, if you're not self-reflective and staying up to date, like we're talking about, you in the expert role get lost in that, but creating the space and, Going one down, you know, the concept of one down used to be like a strategic ploy, but really to go one down in, in this postmodern way, as you say, you were trained, Carrie, of you're co-creating this experience with the client. You are creating uh, this shared space and learning as much from them, hopefully, as they are learning from you. So that is, a, I think, to me, just a better fit for professionally young therapists. You don't have to be the expert, even though you're right in many of our, especially our classic MFT models, when you ask the question, who is responsible for change? Mnuchin would say, oh, well, the cli- the family can't restructure itself without the therapist as expert. Jay Haley would say, you have to be you know, sometimes direct, many times indirect and paradoxical to create this change. So I don't think as a field, we've certainly shifted and understand that a good therapist is able to adapt to the client instead of the other way around, but it's a co-creation. The client is certainly responsible for change, but you have to have that alliance and you have to have a therapist that is is skilled and competent and willing to adjust and be flexible, as you all are pointing out. Carrie, what have you, in doing these interviews, what are the biggest things you've taken away, you've learned?
1: I think that I was secretly hoping, great, I am going to get a master checklist of all of the things not to do, and then I'll never do any of them, and I'll be a good therapist that way. Since obviously learning how to be a good therapist, there was no set way to do that, a lot of conflicting information. I think what I learned after hearing all of these stories is that there are so many ways to be a bad therapist or to do bad therapy, I guess. I think that that's that's the distinction. So many ways to do bad therapy without maybe even being a bad therapist. Um, Something that may seem perfectly great, a great intervention with one client can be seen as absolutely awful to another. And there's no way for you to know ahead of time. You need to, like this idea of adapting to your client, that is the primal thing. That is the most important thing I have learned is that you can't possibly know. You have to learn from your client what works and what doesn't. And to go back to this idea of to what Ben was saying, I think that the thread, the through line through all of our guests' bad experiences has been the defensiveness that comes up on the part of therapists. We need to be, I think, very aware of what our own, as a therapist, what our own defensiveness looks like to us how it shows up, because that, I feel like, has often been the most hurtful thing to the guests on our show, has been how their therapist has handled something that didn't go well. So the lesson I took away there is I am going to mess up. It's how I handle it that is either going to make it be okay and part of what happens in the room or have a lasting negative impact on my client.
0: You're going to, in any good therapy, you're going to make a mistake, especially when there's multiple people in the room. You're going to have uh, an unbalanced alliance from time to time. So when there is a tear, the skill is to be able to recognize it and know how to repair. A lot of alliance research that I'm a big fan of and been a part of is this idea that actual therapeutic relationship is stronger if you have a tear and a successful repair, rather than if you never would have had one at all. And these are the therapists that are doing just what you guys are saying. They are taking the time to ask. They are valuing the client's experience. They are getting non-defensive. They are trying first to understand before becoming reactive or what Ben was talking about earlier, what I call the writing reflex, just trying to quickly fix it without listening to the client. So it's amazing because I think it's hard to believe you have only been doing this for a few years. And that curiosity that you have, is certainly one of your common factors that make you can already tell effective clinician so when you have a show like this you have to have a thick skin to do a podcast especially something like this that if taken out of context could ruffle some feathers so I'm curious how has it been received from your peers your instructors at your program and uh, or potential supervisors I'm curious the reception that you've gotten from the show
2: It's been surprisingly positive. I think when we started, we had this concern that the powers that be would look very critically upon us trying to shine a light on what's not going well in the field. I think there's a few reasons why that's happened. The first is, I mean, there's obviously a selection bias. So people who aren't interested in our ideas are either not listening or leaving us a one-star review and never coming back, which is perfectly fine. But I think more importantly is we're talking directly to clients of therapy and we're citing research. We're not coming in as sort of fresh faces in the field, trying to tear things down because we're coming in from some far out ideological place. We're looking at what's presented in front of us and just talking about it. And it, it surprises us that more people aren't doing those kinds of things saying, why are bad experiences happening and what is the research that supports it? I think it's hard to be critical of what we're doing in that respect because it's, it's not our own perspective It's us just trying to cite what's in front of us. That said, Carrie and I have been called out a few times for therapist shaming. As open as I try to be to feedback, I mean, otherwise I would be a a tremendous hypocrite. Uh, I do push back on that a bit because I mean, more practically, we don't call out individual therapists. That doesn't serve any tremendous purpose. But it isn't so much as shaming as, as much as it is being able to talk about things that we don't otherwise talk about. And so the, the feedback has been generally very positive, especially from people in the early stages of their careers who are hearing these ideas for the first time, and it's also been positive from people who aren't in the field, who have found our podcast, who are just consumers of therapy, especially those who have had bad experiences themselves, who feel like for the first time, they don't feel like they have to hold this burden all to themselves because there are people saying, no, this happens, and it sucks that this happens, and we can do something about it. Okay, what do you think? Because I've been really surprised at the reception that we've been getting.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I think that we were told a lot going into this that we were going to have to steal ourselves for a lot of pushback that the field wouldn't like that we're doing this. And that has like almost not materialized at all. And again, could be selection bias or it could be that, you know, maybe people chalk it up and figure there's no point in giving us feedback because what do we know and we're not worth their time. All of that. I think that that feedback is not something we've had to deal with. I think that where we have had to really take a hard look at who we are as podcasters is we have had some feedback, as Ben and I both are white clinicians, when we are trying to deal with stories of race or inequality in general, there can be some negative feedback around that, that we have had a really, a long journey to Try to incorporate that feedback and understand how we can change, how we can change the show to be more helpful instead of harmful. When it comes to those issues, I don't think it's not that we need a thick skin. We've had to really learn how to listen and figure out how we can change to be helpful. But that I think has been the corner from where we've gotten the most meaningful negative feedback.
0: I love hearing you say that, and it's all, it's like a parallel process, right? It's isomorphic, so it's like we're talking about being open as therapists to our clients. You guys are open to this feedback that you're getting from your listeners too, which I think is what makes it effective. Another thing that makes it effective, I mean, you guys have a nice chemistry together. When you can both be curious and informative as your show is, but also in, enjoy each other, it, it's a much more enjoyable listen. So. You know, to hear the story of how you guys met, you would think you'd known each other a long time. It is a good chemistry. So, other than just having these common interests, do you guys
2: work on that or do you think it's natural?
1: It's natural. I don't know. What do you think, Ben?
2: Yeah, I think we, don't we just
1: really show up. practice around chemistry.
2: <laughs> we just show up as ourselves. We really enjoy, I mean, as, as we talked about earlier, we really enjoy each other's company. And so it, it's totally natural. And when I reflect back on the, the few years that I've known Carrie now, I am just so incredibly grateful. And glad that I got to meet her. I mean in part because I I consider her one of my best friends and this has been uh, just a wonderful journey not just on our podcast but all the conversations we have personally just about the philosophy of therapy. But there's something so valuable as you're learning to be a therapist in having somebody who shares your passions that you can bounce ideas off of. And I am certainly not experienced enough to impart wisdom you know based on my decades in the field or anything like that. But to anybody listening who's new to the field, There are so many wonderful communities out there, and it is just invaluable to find people that you really click with, where you can get excited about the ideas that interest you, and talk about them, and pick them apart, and study them, and grow according to what you feel is really fun and interesting and new in the field, because sometimes you kind of have to go outside of the traditional pathways to find those things, and I've just found it so invaluable, and I'm so grateful to have met Carrie for that reason.
0: Uh, so many like life lessons in your talk today I think like when you're in this kind of furtive environment of cohort or your training program you think these opportunities will always be there but you're right Ben you have to find people and how you prevent against professional stagnation or practicing in isolation is you keep the dialogue going so what you all are doing is so essential It's while you're in a program, but certainly if you don't learn those skills while you're in a program, it's harder to connect with people and find them outside of that. So I I couldn't agree more. So I've listened to a lot of the show. You are your real selves and you're authentic, which again, is one of these common factors. So I'm curious what your biggest fail is in your own training and young career that you've learned from. Put you on the spot. Talk about your your biggest mistake that you maybe processed with a client and then repaired and learned from?
1: When you first asked that question, I thought, wow, there's like so many ways I could go with this because I think I've had different fails in all aspects of this career that have been instructive. But specifically working with clients, I've had a client who, this was before I implemented feedback informed treatment, came into session one day and said, "Like this style really isn't working for me which upon hearing that, (laughs) I definitely had that moment of, oh no, terrible. But I was just so grateful that they had the self-confidence or wherewithal to tell me this isn't working. Here's what I would like instead. And I know that not every client, especially after hearing the guests on our show, I know not every client is able to articulate that. I think that one of the Other major lessons that we have learned from the clients on the show is how hard it is to tell your therapist if there's something that's not right, particularly if it's something the therapist is doing. It is so, so difficult. I do not think that gets like drilled into us enough. You almost have to expect that even the most upfront client is gonna have a hard time saying certain things to you. I've had other fails with clients where, you know, something has not worked out, something has not gone right, and it, it has given me the opportunity, I think, to really stop and try to sit there with them and that kind of drag that out into the light and demonstrate like it's okay. You can tell me what isn't working here. Because it's not going to hurt me. You're not. You don't need to take care of me. Let's let's figure out what this is so it can work for you. But yeah, that moment with that client is what stands out for me. Ben, did you have a yeah? uh,
2: Yeah. Well, I don't know if I'd like to speak to it, but in in retrospect, it was a valuable lesson to learn. Um, So as as Carrie mentioned, I am white. I had a, a client I was working with. A couple. They were black, and I generally. Get really excited by ideas outside of therapy as much as inside of therapy, like the typical frameworks. And so I was reading something by the social psychologist Jonathan Haidt. He has this this conceptualization called the moral foundations hypothesis. And I promise this will go somewhere related to therapy soon. That the way you view certain pillars of morality kind of shapes your political perspective. And there are certain questions, it's kind of like a quiz that you can take or a survey, and it places you I think pretty accurately sort of based on your perception of morality and something that this couple was struggling with was finding common ground around certain issues that related to their deeper values and so i thought oh this is a really interesting survey i find it valuable so why not bring it in and see how it works if i give it to both of them and see where they differ and so i printed out copies and i handed it to them and i'll never forget one of them stopped after about three questions and looked at me and just went Ben, this survey was not made for us. And I had this wave of shame rush over me. Incidentally, I know Jonathan Haidt gets a fair bit of criticism uh, for his political ideologies. And I knew that even when I was going into this session, and I thought, well, it's probably not going to be a big deal. This will just be a fun, interesting thing that we can do together. And I had to check myself and realize, coming from the places of privilege I have, that certain questions, certain ways of looking at the world and evaluating yourself are done through certain cultural lenses that very clearly signal that some things are or are not written or designed for people of color. And that was a super valuable lesson to learn, very humbling. And I had to do a lot of my own work outside of therapy to not only process why I made that mistake, but also my shame response around it and how I can make sure that that doesn't interfere with my ability to have a good repair going forward.
0: I knew you guys would be able to answer that without very little hesitation because it's an authentic, congruent process. And I'm uh, speaking... The amft leadership cohort and uh, giving the keynote address and it's all same thing my greatest fails because there's no one that has done this for a long time that hasn't made these mistakes and hasn't also learned from them so that's what i love about the show not only are you going to get this great research informed perspective as ben has been bringing in but you're gonna gonna get these scenarios and when you listen to it whether you are a client or like our audience a therapist you can relate to it and again it, it normalizes the process so if I could only, let's say, I've just discovered this today. If I could only listen to one very bad therapy episode, tell me your favorite that maybe some listeners getting turned on to Ben and Carrie for the first time today could pick up and would be a good one to encompass and embody a lot of the stuff we've talked about this hour.
1: So the on our show we do, it's like three-ish different formats, really. There's our, our typical one where we have a, the a, a guest sharing a very bad uh, therapy experience. And then we also have a whole string of episodes called Very Bad Therapy in History. I think if you are a super nerd and you like learning about weird therapy stuff through history, those are good to listen to. Then we also have Very Bad Therapy in Focus. with their, their, The whole episode is an interview with somebody whose work we just find really interesting and want to learn from. So those are great if you want to like hear you know, Scott Miller and Daryl Chow talk about their work and, and stuff. But I don't know, Ben, for our, our guest uh, uh, stories, I mean, I think the, the tackling episode's pretty great.
2: I, I think the ones that stand out to me most are when we interview people who are completely unaffiliated with the field of psychotherapy because it's really valuable to hear client perspectives. And we had an episode that was released, uh, I believe, in September with a gentleman named Hank Spearings, and he's in his mid-60s, he's had a lifetime of therapy that ranged from ineffective to outright harmful. And just hearing his story, and then hearing the lessons that he's taken away without really giving our input or implying certain things about how he should be thinking is so incredibly valuable. To hear people come to their own conclusions about what does and doesn't work in therapy for them, we can learn so much from clients of therapy who have nothing to do with the field. I think that episode came to mind, Eli, when you had asked, one that really stood out. Yeah, like they have
0: no dog in the fight, no affiliation or or affinity to anything else. They can just be... Generally honest, and that's what I love about uh, the Common Factors work too. Is if you're not tied to any model specifically, and you're dedicated to this feedback informed work, you don't have a professional allegiance. You don't get caught up in model specific language, and you can you can also see commonalities between approaches. But yeah, sometimes when you just ask a client, and they can be real like that without any fear of repercussions, you learn so much. So I have learned uh, so much in today, and it, I mean it's really hard to believe. If, if you listened to this episode out of context, you would not believe you guys are only a couple years into your training. Sometimes when I'm interviewing a pioneer, it's how you want to be remembered. This is the other end of the spectrum. Like, what do you guys want to be doing, let's say, five years from now?
2: I'm thinking Carrie's probably sitting there hoping she'll have graduated by then.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm certainly thinking that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> For me, I, I, Eli, I have no idea, honestly. I, I don't know if I ever want to be able to say I'm certain what I want to be doing in five years. I think... I have a need as a therapist, as a, a person in this field to show up as authentic as possible and to do things that make me feel like I'm making a difference, not just for my individual clients but on a systemic level, pushing the field forward, helping to sort of overcome some of that institutional inertia that exists to fight for better outcomes and fight to empower clients to be able to show up in therapy and get the results that they deserve and that they need. So. Specifically, I have no idea, but I'm excited to figure out what that looks like five years from now.
1: Yeah, same. What Ben said.
2: (laughs) (laughs)
0: That's great. All right. Very Bad Therapy is the podcast. You can find it wherever you find your favorite podcast don't give them any one-star reviews like subscribe download and you guys are very user friendly as far as taking feedback which has been our big focus today and interacting with your listeners tell them how to contact you
1: Uh, you can go to our website verybadtherapy.com that's a form there to fill out uh, if you want to submit your story to us also you can just email us through there we're also on facebook If you come like our page, we often post stuff there. Yeah, or just email us at, is it vbtpodcast at gmail.com.
2: We're always happy to hear from people, to have these kinds of conversations that maybe aren't happening elsewhere. It's something that excites us, and we enjoy connecting with people all around the world who just want to reach out and say hi and bounce some ideas off of us. Eli,
0: back with you, bringing to a close another successful installment of the AAMFT podcast. I really enjoyed talking to those two. They have an energy about them. Trust me, if you check out the show, Very Bad Therapy, it transfers over. It's conversational, informative, and a continuation of what you heard us talk about. The website, verybadtherapy.com. You can find this wherever you find your favorite podcast. And a little cross-promotion, they had me on to talk about Very Bad Family Therapy. That's episode 71, released late in December of 2020, but you can find it along with all of those other episodes that they mentioned in their archives, verybadtherapy.com. You can also get a hold of Ben at benfinemancounseling.com, and Carrie Wida is available at By HappenChance that is an awesome blog about anyone thinking about becoming an mft it's the journey of a therapist in training and she uses all of her unique skills on there by happenchance.com we love hearing from you that drives our show whether we're featuring emerging topics or young and up and coming mfts like ben and carrie or legends, the pioneers in the field. AMFT Podcast, your one-stop shop for everything systemic going on in the world of individual and couple and family therapy. We come to you twice a month, dropping on Fridays. And if you haven't caught the show or you're just catching the show today for the first time because you're a fan of Ben and Carrie, please check us out in the archives. We've talked to the who's who. The movers and shakers in MFT and really look forward to hearing from you, the listener. You can get a hold of me several ways. You can go to EliKaram.com. You can send me an email at Eli at NorthStarCounselingCenter.com. Or you can follow the conversation on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Eli Live. The AMFT is at the AMFT and our hashtag is Stay Systemic. Please drop us a line, leave a review and star rating. It helps us grow, move up in the ranks of mental health podcast. And until next time, my friends, stay safe, stay systemic.